This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Now is the time to load up on all your summer reading. Until July 14th, get 50% off all books or buy two, get the third book free. The discount is automatically applied to the lowest price book in the cart. Verso is dropping new reading lists and announcing contests on social media, so be sure to follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Verso Books. That's Verso Books. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of The Dig Presents, our new documentary show. If you've been enjoying this series, please do tell other people about it. You can find all of the episodes of The Dig Presents on the regular Dig feed, and also on a special feed that is just for this series. Look up The Dig Presents. So, if you have a friend who, for whatever unfortunate reason, does not want to listen to a typical Dig two-hour interview, but does like powerful storytelling, just share this documentary feed with them. Look up The Dig Presents wherever you get podcasts. Also, some exciting news. Al Jazeera's daily podcast, The Take, recently interviewed Omar Etman about the episode of The Dig Presents that he reported, a story about his grandmother and her neighbors fighting for a community garden in Cairo, and what that all says about public space under al-Sisi's reactionary regime. I highly recommend checking out this episode of The Take, and I put a link to it in the show notes. One last piece of business before we get rolling. We do hope to order a second season of The Dig Presents, but these stories do cost quite a bit more to put together than a standard Dig interview. And so that means that we need to raise a bit more through monthly Patreon donations to keep The Dig Presents up and running for a second season. Our goal is to raise $1,000 in monthly donations, which only gets us about a quarter of the way to fully covering the costs, but it's enough to do a second season. And so if you like what we're doing here and you want to keep it going, please contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have mugs, tote bags, and books to send listeners in the U.S. who contribute at least $10 a month. And listeners everywhere who contribute get our excellent weekly newsletter for a contribution of any amount at all. And overseas listeners can also get access to ebooks. Please contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. This week's episode is brought to us by the writer and critic Andrea Long Chu. A year ago, when we were first brainstorming this series, she sent us a pitch. She wanted to ask everyone in her big extended family one simple question. Here's the story. I have this memory of my grandfather. When I was a kid, late elementary school maybe, I was at my cousin's house and someone prompted me to show my grandfather that I could count to ten in Chinese. I'd taught myself to do this with the help of some educational CDs, the result being that the numbers were all mushed together into one long word in my mind. I told my grandfather. Oh, he grunted, mildly amused. Can you do it backwards? My grandfather, Zhu Baoshan, David in English, was born in Shanghai in 1923 to well-educated parents. He grew up in the French concession, 
where he tried to convince his little brother that the soldiers in the barracks next door knew who he was. Turns out that bonjour sounded a lot like his name in Shanghainese. During the Japanese occupation of Shanghai, my grandfather ended up in Chongqing, the wartime capital. One day, an incendiary bomb from one of Japan's air raids fell into his courtyard, but failed to ignite. In his memoirs, he remembers taking a steamboat down the Yangtze River back to Shanghai after the war. He even translates a few lines from a Tang Dynasty poem about a man returning from exile. On both sides of the river, the incessant barking of monkeys, as a leaf of a light boat shot through multitudinous mountains. I never knew that guy. The guy I knew was a soft-spoken man in orthopedic shoes that loved God, his grandchildren, and the New York Yankees. He fled the communists in 1949 and ended up doing his medical residency at a hospital in Brooklyn, where he met my grandmother, a white nurse from Jersey. The two of them would spend the better part of two decades as medical missionaries in South Korea while raising my dad and his siblings. By the time I knew him, my grandfather spent most of his time in a recliner, reading the New York Times or watching college basketball on TV. Sometimes he would make us fried rice or red braised pork with hard-boiled eggs, but he almost never talked about China or being Chinese. Hello? Hey, good morning. Hi, morning. This is my cousin Lisa. <laughs> I was waiting for you to call me, and I just <laughs> picked up and said, oh, no, you're waiting for me. <laughs> These days, Lisa and I don't get a chance to connect that often. But when we do, we talk about our shared obsession, family history. You know, Grandpa wasn't really concerned with these um, earthly designations about people. He really saw his life more in terms of Jesus and the kingdom of God, being a child of God. And then being Chinese was what I am here, but it didn't really dictate his values. It's like even I would ask him questions. And he was almost even annoyed <laughs> with me asking these questions because I could see it just really wasn't relevant to him, you know. That last part isn't true for Lisa. She's my first cousin once removed. Her mom was my grandfather's sister, which means that unlike me and most of my relatives, she's fully Chinese, as are her husband and kids. They live outside of Atlanta, where a white gunman murdered six Asian women in 2021. Lisa has always made a point of talking to her kids about the reality of living in this country. We can't pretend to be American in the eyes of Americans. I guess that's what I wanted them to know is no matter what, the vast majority of this nation is going to look at you and say, you're a Chinese. Or you can say, yes, you're a citizen, you're American, because um, you have an American passport. But on the day-to-day -day living with people or interacting with people, you, you are still going to be Chinese. Like for, for you, you kind of still have the option to say you're American. No problem. I feel like I've spent my whole life trying to figure out whether I can call myself Chinese. I'm a quarter, good for one gumball. I look white, or at least most people think I do. 
and I never felt like my race was a problem growing up in the evangelical South. In the first grade, I played one of the three kings in our school Christmas pageant, as in, we three kings of Orient are, and some other kids painted my face brown. Was this because they saw me as white enough to do blackface, or because I too of Orient was? In college, I minored in Chinese language. I picked it up so fast that they put me in the heritage track with the kids who spoke it with their parents at home, even though my half-Chinese dad doesn't speak two words of it. My presence felt tenuous, even accidental, like I'd been mistaken for someone else, but was too scared to speak up. In theory, my racial anxieties had an easy solution. I was both white and Chinese. But I just couldn't square that with everything I thought I knew about race. I kept thinking, of course I'm white, because I look white. Or, of course I'm white, because I benefit from white privilege. Or, of course I'm white, or functionally white, because my grandfather assimilated, and aside from the occasional social snub, neither he nor his kids were barred from economic success. Or worst of all, of course I'm white, because I'm asking the question. And asking the question means I don't want to be white. And everybody knows that not wanting to be white is the whitest thing of all. Today, most of my friends think of me as Asian. My partner is Chinese. We speak Chinese at home, make Chinese food. I cried during everything, everywhere, all at once. One time, Padma Lakshmi put me in her Instagram stories with the caption, AAPI Excellence. But still, Asian American and Pacific Islander Excellence? Me? So, I'm still wary of identifying as Asian, for fear that the white part of me might end up culturally appropriating the Chinese part, crouching tiger, meat hidden dragon. But this is something of an embarrassment. It can feel like a duty to have a firm grasp of one's own racial coordinates, to know how to narrate the gap between personal identification and the public assignment of race, between how the world sees you and how you see yourself. I don't know how to do that, and frankly, I'm exhausted from trying on my own. So I asked my cousin Lisa, does she think of me as a white person? Ah, uh, okay. I mean, I didn't, um, and yeah. I think that's it. You know, I, I feel like that's very subjective. Um, do anything you want. Um, you know, I guess I feel like you're Chinese. Um, if I had to pick, I'd say Chinese. Especially talking to your uncles and aunts. I've asked them that question, like, what do they consider themselves? And I've always been kind of amused, but not surprised. I feel like they all gave different answers and, you know, kind of like split down the middle how they identify themselves. Hello? Hello? Hi. Hello? Hey, Andrea. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. I'm hoping I'm not completely befuddled from not having talked that much this morning. <laughs> That's okay. Be befuddlement is still uh, interesting, so... The Chinese side of my family is huge. 
My dad has two brothers and two sisters, and I've got over a dozen first cousins. The youngest grandkids aren't even in their teens. The oldest ones, like me, are in our early 30s. We all grew up together. Beach trips, Nintendo, pretzels at the mall. We're the kind of family that made t-shirts for our family reunions, which we called family reunions because the family name is Chu. The one I remember most vividly featured a family tree with 30 plus names on it, just in case we needed to brush up on our own genealogy. Everyone in my dad's generation married a white person, save one, who married a Taiwanese-American woman he met at seminary. So we've got people all along the spectrum between fully Chinese and fully white. But we almost never talk about it. So I've been calling up my relatives, asking them the same question I asked Lisa. Do they think I'm white? Um, uh, uh, you, you, Andrea, Gosh. Um. Um. If I like just saw you, I would say yes. Um. No. Yes. After a fashion. If I had to land on something, I think I would say white because that closely approximates how you look. I always have thought that you and your siblings looked, of all of the grandkids, looked the most Asian out of everybody. I don't think of you as white, or not exclusively. I would say that as a whole, we share a lot more tendencies with um, white culture. I personally view myself often as white, inherently. I, I know Asian American's not quite right, but it, I mean, essentially it's like I'm, or you are part Asian, part, white and live in America, so, I mean. If you want me to say yes or no to the question, do I think of you as white? Um, um, probably no, but neither do I think of you as Chinese. I mean, it's all up in the eye of the beholder, I guess, so it's not for me to say, I suppose, but yeah, but I mean, who gives a crap what my opinion is, right, about... <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess so, yeah. I mean, is, th is that... <laughs> sure. another way to answer that like you're you're at least part white <clears throat> or mostly I mean that seems like a reasonable way to answer <laughs> alright <laughs> I don't know I feel like I feel like if I answer that wrong I'm I'm walking into a trap wait what trap I don't know I feel like I could well uh, if I were to be like, uh, I don't know, I guess there isn't really a trap there. <laughs> I know what he means. We all do. In my family, at least, we try to keep our race cards close to our chests. But there's no way to answer a question like, am I white, without tipping your hand. It's not lost on any of my relatives that when I ask them to weigh in on my race, I'm also asking them to reveal what they think of their own. There's a whole matrix of potential fears here. The fear of pretending to have an identity you don't have a claim to, or the fear of being hopelessly assimilated, or the fear of simply not knowing how to self-narrate. It's one thing to work out your own private race logic for yourself. It's a whole other thing to take out that reasoning and drape it over someone else's life. What if their reasoning contradicts mine? Who gets to be right? So I thought I was in for some uncomfortable conversations. 
Honestly, I was probably trying to make my relatives uncomfortable, at least at first. But I was quickly surprised to find out just how glad my family members were for the opportunity to talk about this stuff. It was like they'd all been waiting around, some of them maybe for years, for decades, for someone to come along and just ask. I remember the first time when a lot of my classmates found out that I was Chinese, even being only a quarter Chinese, I remember it made me kind of the topic of ridicule. This is my cousin, Bethy. They would say like, King Chong, and like trying to talk to me like that. Or it would be, I'm sure you probably witnessed as well, where people would like take their fingers and like slant their eyes and stuff like that. I felt like that was kind of when I associated myself more with being white. It's worth pointing out here that Bethy is pretty white-passing, especially compared with some of our other cousins. It's actually hard for me to picture anyone making fun of her on the basis of race, though that's probably just me underestimating the cruelty of children. In any case, Bethy tells me, she doesn't worry about it anymore. If I'm asked to choose between being Asian versus white, I always associate with being white. Most of my friends know that I'm a quarter Chinese. But I think they would tell you, like, if you were to ask them if I'm white, they would all say yes. So for a while growing up, um, I just said that I was white and I stuck with that. This is Bethy's younger sister, Anna Gale. Because of my mom, I think I held such a beauty standard for it that I wasn't this, you know, very thin, like soft features and, you know, straight hair, kind of like I was, I did not fit in that mold. And so I think growing up, like that was something I wish that I had. I think in my mind, I thought it would make me feel more beautiful if I had looked more Asian. Anna Gale tells me she now identifies as Asian American, and she's made a point to surround herself with more Asian American friends and learn about Chinese culture. I relate to this, but I'm too sheepish to tell her so in the moment. It's made me realize that, like, I've kind of neglected that part of myself. I think, I guess for fear of, like, people, you know, coming and saying, like, you can't identify as that because you're not enough of a percentage or whatever it may be, I feel like I should have paid more attention to that, accepted it more in myself, because it is a part of myself that I should have held to a greater... Like, I should have had more appreciation and acceptance in myself for it, if that makes sense. It struck me that Bethy and Anagel were telling me the same story, one about moving through shame and confusion to something like acceptance. But somehow they've ended up on opposite sides of the question. Bethy, mocked for being Chinese, now comfortably identifies as white, while Anagel has finally given herself permission not to be white, after years of not feeling Asian enough. Intellectually, I know these are equally legitimate conclusions, at least as legitimate as any judgment about race can be, but I'm realizing that somehow I'm biased against both. I was disappointed each time one of my relatives told me they thought they were white, but skeptical any time they told me they weren't. This is my Uncle Phil, the oldest of all my dad's siblings. He's an ornithologist in Minnesota, 
He's tall and self-effacing and cheerfully unfiltered. I have never really felt, I mean, I look Asian, right? So I, I kind of can't get away from that one, but, but I never really think of myself as, as anything in particular. I have, I have no real, I don't think I'm misstating things when I say that I don't really have any you know, race consciousness with regard to myself anyway. I mean, I probably thought about it when I was in junior high. What did you think about when you were in junior high? <laughs> well, you know, people call you names. Mm. But to be fair, I mean, everybody called everybody names. Do you remember names that you got called? Um, The only one I remember being called is Chink. And, you know, I'm sort of surprised because you know, there are those other terms out there. Gook and Nip and things like that, which, of course, don't really apply to Chinese or not supposed to, but, I mean, who can tell, really? But since then, it has been exceptionally rare to have any feelings one way or another about being Asian. Phil tells me that he and his siblings never got any Chinese culture from their dad, though this doesn't seem to bother him at all, something I have to say I really struggle to understand. I guess for me, right, like, I have an experience now as an adult of, like, a kind of loss. You know, there are things that I wish had been passed down that were not. And that is really not, it's not as if that's because my dad could have and didn't. It's because his dad could have and didn't. Do you feel like that, that any degree of this sense of having lost something comes from having, uh, for example, I'm sorry to, to make this such a shallow, shallow statement, but uh, from studying Chinese language? Um, no, I don't. I don't think that um, I don't think that's a shallow part of it. Like, I mean, I guess there's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing. Hmm. Uh, not to be an ornithologist about it, but uh, thanks. That's as much as that joke um, merited. Because um, uh, I wanted to study Chinese since I was a kid. Really? Oh yeah. You know, I have. I've, I've never had any desire to know Chinese, and I don't. I don't know if that actually says something. Like I didn't want to be Chinese. I don't know if that's what that says. Um, So, yeah, so I guess it's an interesting question whether the absence of interest in learning Chinese represents sort of a desire to kind of sublimate that part of myself. I, you know, I don't know. That's, that's... Well, if, if that were the case, how would that make you feel? Well, weird. It does seem conceivable that 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 this is why as a kid I wasn't really interested in learning Chinese and it's surprising to me to even think about it so you ask how I feel and I would say if that is true I'm sort of surprised in a way because it would mean that I felt things stronger than I really remember Talking with Phil, it was like I was listening to him work out his answers to these questions in real time, making
maybe for the first time. But some of my other relatives, like my Aunt Lydia, have clearly been thinking about this for years. When I was in elementary school, this boy who I I didn't recognize drove by our yard, and I was playing out in the front yard, and nobody else was out there. And he yelled, Jap! And so, like, I thought, being smarty, I said, Ha ha, not Jap! I'm a chink! (laughs) Ironically, though, Lydia always thought she looked less Chinese than her older sister, Louisa. Just having one sister to compare myself to, I always felt a little critical of how she, um, I don't feel this way at all now, but how she felt this need, it was important to her to identify as Chinese. And I made the attribution that it's because um, she was looking for ways to feel special. The question is, why wasn't I embracing mine more fully? I, to me, like, I just, like, wonder what was going on in my head. I mean, nothing, really. Nothing was going on in my head. Just living life. I think everyone in my father's generation knows that they're racial outliers, even if they don't see themselves as experiencing racism. Like a lot of Asian Americans, frankly, they feel like they live on the white side of the color line. Only for them, this is weirdly literal. You can see it in their faces. But what they don't have, for the most part, is some kind of cultural framework, like language or custom, for making their racial difference mean something. There's a real loss there. And my generation, we've inherited that loss, still unresolved, like they've bequeathed us these empty boxes that they never learned how to fill. This is a new thought for me, that the whole anxiety dance around my own race might not be the most important emotion in the room, that it might be a diversion from the quiet distribution of grief that my cousins and I carry. I wonder if I should let myself grieve. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Bodies Under Siege, How the Far-Right Attack on Reproductive Rights Went Global by Sean Norris. Today's anti-abortion movement is largely financed and planned by far-right extremists. Many of them are avowedly fascist and white supremacist, afraid of a great replacement of the world's white population by other races, who are working hard to reshape government and policies across Europe, North America, and around the world. As investigative journalist Sean Norris uncovers, it is through attacking abortion rights that fascist ideas from the dark web, incel chat boards, and fringe organizations come to enter mainstream debate. As investigative journalist Sean Norris uncovers, it is through attacking abortion rights that fascist ideas from the dark web, incel chat boards, and fringe organizations come to enter mainstream debate. Norris goes undercover at anti-abortion activist meetings and pieces together the money trail linking American think tanks to far-right fascist groups. She maps out the pipeline by which fascism has become respectable across the global north by taking away women's reproductive rights and autonomy. 
Bodies Under Siege by Sean Norris. Out now from Verso Books. I remember kids um, singling me out and making fun of my name. This is my dad, Peter. We're sitting in his walk-in closet in my childhood home in North Carolina. I remember this one kid would just sort of over and over would say, chew your food, like that. My dad tells me that this kind of thing still happens occasionally. He'll hear a white friend of his do an imitation of an Asian language that sounds like Jar Jar Binks. But he's clearly uncomfortable using the word racism, and he's at pains to minimize the negative effects that being Asian has had on his life. I guess I always feel as though the level that I experience is not not enough to get that excited about in comparison to what other people experience that is really, like, super ingrained in and terrible, really. You know, Mom, when we applied for a job in Shelby, we were given a tour by one of the other doctors, and Mom remembers very distinctly him talking about the colored people living over here, and then there was some mention about this Asian family who owns a restaurant and as being the only other Asian family that they knew of. And she really took exception to that. The thought that we'd be the only, one of the only Asian families in this town, she did not like that idea. Ultimately, my parents decided on Asheville, a hippie town in the Blue Ridge Mountains, albeit one that is still overwhelmingly white. I feel a kinship with Asians when I'm around here because there aren't that many. So when I see them, I I don't know. It's not like I want to go be their best buddy or anything, but more just I feel like we sort of understand. I understand maybe where they are a little bit. But I, it's not so much that I felt like my father passed down things to me that make me feel more Asian other than the physical and the name. I think of myself as a Chinese person who doesn't speak Chinese. Do you uh, do you feel Chinese? Yeah, in a way, I do. I mean, I I feel very American, but I also feel different too. People don't look at me and say, "Oh, that's a white person." They say that's an Asian person. And I even think of myself that way. I don't think of myself as being half white, even though, of course, I am. I don't look at you guys and think, oh, this is a white kid. You look, you could pass as a total white bread person, but the features still show if you look. The eyes, especially. You think my eyes look Asian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, not so much so that I think people can tell, but but I can see it. That's interesting because I usually don't think that I can, you know, because the genetic dice have been rolled many, many, many times. And so you could really, like, take all the cousins and kind of line them up. If one was feeling, I don't know, like a Nazi, you could <laughs> take them and line them up in order of how white they looked. And if you did that, like, it's you and I can both think of who would be on which ends of that. You know, like, it's pretty clear. And I would be on the, I think, I would be on the pretty far white end of that. Yeah. 
we can, I mean, we can start winding down now. Um, but like, we never talked about this. It wasn't a thing that like was ever addressed really. Like obviously it was something we all knew. It wasn't like it was being hidden or anything like that, but the significance of it, if it had any significance was not, it was just kind of there, you know? Um, I guess I'm sad about that sometimes. I don't even know what there would have been to say, and maybe that's why there wasn't a conversation, but did you ever think of talking to us about that? Or Yeah, I, I mean, I would say I didn't ever think about that, maybe in part because my own father didn't have that conversation with me, or I, to my knowledge, any of us. But for you, I have really thought that you had great interest in Chinese because of your heritage. And, I mean, it's pretty awesome that you've been able to be as fluent as you are. You seem to be able to have quite a bit of conversation. And that, that pleases me that you found that part of yourself something you wanted to magnify. <laughs> Even calling it magnifying makes it sound like it's small to begin with. You know what I mean? It's true. It's true. It does make it sound that way. But in that sense, you've exceeded me. And, uh, yeah, I am happy about that. For my dad, things are pretty simple. Being Chinese is part of who he is, but not a big part. And he doesn't think it's very important politically. Now, I know it would be so easy to dismiss him, to say that he lacks race consciousness or that he doesn't appreciate the gravity of assimilation or that he hasn't sufficiently interrogated his whiteness or any number of smug responses that have the ring of unflinching political critique. But really, I mean really, are probably just neat ways to shut the conversation down. And it was such a breath of fresh air to have a conversation. It felt like a middle space between my private anxieties about race and the public performance of racial certainty. It was helpful to just sit in that middle space for a few minutes without running away or throwing concepts at each other. I guess what I'm trying to say is it was nice to hang out with my dad. Hey. How's it going, Andrea? It's good. How are you? Good. I'm good. Um, just eating my very healthy, no diabetes lunch. It's actually good, but I've just been eating a lot of fish mostly. <laughs> my last call is to my cousin Rachel. Of all of my relatives, I'm closest with her. She's about a year older than me. There are pictures of us in the bath together as toddlers, and I was a bridesmaid in her wedding. At her request, I read a famous Latin love poem during the ceremony, because both she and her husband are Latin teachers. We've always shared that, a love of languages. We've both studied Chinese. And we've talked a lot about what it means to be mixed. You know, here's a question that I'm realizing I wish I had asked other people in the family. If you could pick, like, this is, such, this is a deranged question. This is a deranged question. Go ahead. You know what I'm going to say. Yeah. 
What am I? No, no, no. no. What do you think I'm? What do you think I'm gonna say? If I could pick, if I were Asian or white, which one I pick? Yeah, like what? What percentage breakdown would you pick? Oh, if I could pick a percent? Oh, that's different. Okay, um, maybe fifty-fifty. <laughs> but not all the way. I don't know. Um, you know, I like I. The hypothetical is a bit weird. It's something I would need to consider. It's an aspect of my identity I would like to lay more claim to but i don't feel like i look chinese enough have a chinese enough name um or have invested enough time and effort into Mm. like i don't feel that i am like at all credible as an asian person do you wish people could tell (laughs) yeah i do i do wish people could tell i wish that i looked more chinese i don't sit around like longing that that were the case um but i wish my outside reflected my inside more i guess You know, it's super interesting. Your mother told me that when she and Louisa were in high school, that Louisa started getting interested in Chinese things. And that your mother, at the time, felt very critical of it. That, like, Louisa was just trying to be special. Interesting. But she did correct that kid on the bike calling her the the racial slur. Yes, she told me that story. You know, I've been discriminated against for being Chinese in my adult life by my extremely terrible students leaving these racial caricatures around in, like, my desk drawer and stuff with, like, racist drawings of Asian people writing, like, Asian-sounding sounds on them. And I called those kids racist bastards, like, in class. But I really had to apologize for that later. I got in trouble. For for calling them racist or for calling them bastards? Bastards. Just the phrase. Um... And so my response to that, I, like, made them these sarcastic... I don't know if it looks sarcastic to them. I, made, I wrote in calligraphy on, like, some cards and was like, sorry, I called you a racist bastard on the front of the card and put some stickers on it. And then on the inside, <laughs> I wrote, like, I'm an adult and you're a child. Sorry about that. Like, <laughs> Do those experiences, would... like, is there anything weirdly, like, affirming about those experiences? Or do they really not help with the whole sense of, like mismatched self no i would not say it was affirming it's so stupid and it's so clear that they were doing it like to just make me angry like how what's her face got called um pocahontas or whatever by donald trump and stuff like that <laughs> like in no way was, are they affirming my identity they're just trying to mock me like and possibly trying to mock me for trying to claim it as part of my identity mm, right i hadn't I mean, thought about that you know, my ex-boyfriend's mom knew that I was mixed race because of my hair. Oh, um, interesting. And she didn't really like it very much. Um, but she was looking for reasons to dislike me because, in her words, I was a whore seducing her son into taking liberal arts classes. So, um, <laughs> Well, were you? Was I a whore? No. <laughs> but I encouraged him to study the liberal arts, perhaps. <laughs> that relationship didn't work out. Rachel ended up meeting her husband in college, where they both studied classics. He's kind and nerdy, like her, and he's white, with one very obvious consequence. Um, you are uh, pregnant. Yeah. How pregnant are you? <laughs> 28 
eight weeks, 27 weeks, like six months. Man, that's a lot of months. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm kind of surprised the baby isn't born yet, honestly. I'm also huge. Rachel is the first out of all the cousins to be pregnant, the first to reckon with what it means to have a one-eighth Chinese kid. It's a girl. She tells me they're going to name her Persephone, because again, Latin teachers, though we both know that Persephone is technically ancient Greek. I have thought about it a lot and haven't reached any type of answer that is satisfying emotionally. Like, can my child claim this identity as her own? She will look so un-Chinese that maybe the same way that I look at my mom and think, oh, she's definitely Chinese, like, she's so Chinese. Like, if my kid wanted to invest in her Chinese identity, she would look at me and think that sort of thing. Yeah. But it would need to be, like, a, it would need to be, like, a cultural interest investment for her. Right, right. And remember when I told you about, like, how I had, like, that moment where I had to pick between taking ancient Greek and Chinese? Well, I've named the kid something ancient Greek, and I married and had a kid with a man who I spent a lot of time with in ancient Greek class. So, <laughs> doesn't she seem like a personification of that choice? So, will my daughter be Chinese? Technically, yes. Will I raise her Chinese? I don't know that I know how. I don't know if that's a gift I can give her. I can count to ten easily. Oh, let's hear it. Wow. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I don't think I have the like tonal things. I know it's E R S A N S. Uh This might be Japanese. Is it Ichinisan or something? Something to that effect? I think that is Japanese. Yes, that's Japanese. What is Ni Jao Is that something? Yeah, that means <laughs> that means what is your name? Wow, 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 going past ten. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I can I think I can go to a thousand. I just don't know the word of a thousand. Talking with my family didn't give me answers. But it did give me the opportunity to be more naive, to move past anxiety as a default mode for thinking about race, to let the question sit open for a while, like a window in summertime. Rachel had her baby, little Percy. She looks like her mom. She's got eyes like blueberries, probably just because she's a baby. But who knows? The thing that Rachel said to me about not being able to give her daughter the gift of being Chinese, it stays with me. The fact that our parents never gave us that gift either, the fact that their father never gave it to them, I'm shocked to hear myself say this, but is there a way to be grateful anyway? To let gratitude step in for certainty, for identity? After all these years, it's still hard for me to do. 
That was Andrea Long Chu. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning essayist and book critic at New York Magazine. The Dig Presents is produced and edited by Liza Yeager and Mitchell Johnson. Our artwork is by Celia Nogales. Thanks also to the rest of the Dig team. Alex Lewis, Jackson Roach, Tamuz Frankel, Sylvia Atwood, Fierio Francos, and Ben Maybe, And to our partners at Jacobin. We do hope that you liked this episode of The Dig Presents. We will publish another documentary story around this time next month. Remember, one big goal of The Dig Presents is to bring Dig-style political analysis to a broader and different audience than regular Dig interviews. Please do share it with people you know who might like it and also share it on social media. There is a special Dig Presents feed that just includes these documentary stories. If you have friends, know people who would not be interested in a regular two-hour-long Dig interview but might like this sort of storytelling, please do share it with them. 